I shared with you on Sunday evening, we had our Thanksgiving service. One of the things that had surprised me over the past week, and I, I guess I'm always a little bit surprised at these kind of things, but uh, we were watching television at our house a few days ago, a beer commercial that came on. I realized that the background music to that commercial was leaning on the everlasting arm. Again, I don't know why that should have shocked me, as anything would, but it was such a strange picture to have this commercial and this beautiful song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, as the background music. I've been talking to you a lot about that we have to come here to die to live. That if we don't come here to die so that that old life is over and the new life can come, then Jesus said, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to sever that old life, to leave it behind you and all those things that are there that you know honestly within yourself that are destructive. If you're not willing to leave those behind so that new life can come with all the joy and all the new beginning that's there, you can't be my disciple. Over the last two weeks, I preached on that and made that as clear as I possibly could. One of the things that I shared was that in the story in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the parable of the seed and the soil that the way the current church goes, instead of recognizing that there was one seed, one gospel message, one good news, and that is that Jesus has come, rather than recognizing there's one seed in multiple kinds of soil, what the Christian church today is doing is there's only one kind of soil, and we're trying to create multiple types of seed. We're trying to alter the seed so that it becomes more acceptable to the soil. And Jesus is telling us very clearly, there is only one seed. So when David sent me this link to this article, kind of like, it's almost too hard to believe, but made for a really good illustration of what I'm talking about. The, The heading on the news program was this, religious group wants to build a McDonald's in a church. Here's the message. As church attendance falls, one group believes that the lure of a burger and fries might make church more appealing. And then it talks about where this idea came from. Listen to some of these comments. Christianity is unable to capture modern audiences. There's a lack of innovation and a lack of design thinking in church communities. The multi-denominational group has launched a campaign on the crowdfunding site Indiegogo and hopes to raise $1 million to build the first McDonald's church. It's time for churches to engage with entrepreneurship, writes the group. By combining a church and a McDonald's, we can create a self-sustaining, community-engaged, popular church and an unparalleled McDonald's restaurant. The site states that 3 million people leave the faith every year and that 10,000 churches closed down in 2013, while 700 million people ate McDonald's every day. To attract potential donors, the group is offering t-shirts, hats, and vinyl stickers to adorn your laptops, hymn books, and more. (laughs) Just... Shake my head. There was one piece of good news in this article. It says they hope to raise $1 million to build the first McDonald's church, and as of Friday, only $104 had been raised. (laughs) I tell you, we're working to change the seed when it's really the soil that we need to pay attention to. We just repackage it over and over and over. That one was a little off the chart even for me, to imagine that somebody could actually have that thought and believe that that was a good idea. I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 30. I'm going to share this story with you. I'll tell you up front that I heard 
Bill Johnson used this illustration a while back and it just stuck. And I want to share just a few things about what he shared out of this passage. Beginning with verse 25, I'm, not, I'm probably not going to read all this, I just want to set the background. Jacob has gone now to live with Laban, his father-in-law, his mother's brother. He has married two of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, and it says here in verse 25, And when it came to pass, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away, that I may go into my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go. For thou knowest my service, which I have done. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy eyes, tarry, or wait. For I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me because of you. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little which I had before I came, and now it is increased into a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house? And he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything if you'll do this one thing. I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all the flocks today, removing from them all the speckled and spotted cattle and all the brown cattle among the sheep and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and of these shall be my hire. So here's what Jacob offers. He says, I, if you'll just let me go, I know that you've been blessed because of me and I know that you know it, but it's time for me to go and establish for my own family. It's time for me to be on my own and separated from you. And Laban asked him to stay for a while because he knows the blessing that he's received. Finally, he says, what would it take to keep you? And Jacob said, I really just want one thing. I don't want the best of the flocks. I don't want your money. I don't want the best cattle. I don't want the best sheep. And I don't want the best goats. All I want is for you to give me the ones that are spotted or striped or brown those that you don't want anyway, I just want you to give them to me. Knowing Laban, this was the best possible deal that he could hear because he knew that there weren't many of those. And I know that at that moment he thinks he's getting quite a bargain. If Jacob is willing to do this for so little and keep taking care of my flocks, then I get the best of both worlds. I get rid of everything I don't want. I get to keep what I want and he's still going to take care of my animals. And so... Laban would have been very excited had that story been over right there. But listen to this. I want to jump down to verse 37. In between it says he actually did it. He went and got the dropped ones, he got the speckled ones, and he got the brown ones. And here we are in verse 37. And Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of the hazel and chestnut tree and peeled white strakes in them and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which had been peeled before the flocks in the gutters and the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods and brought forth cattle ring-straked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-strength and all the brown in the flock of Laban. He put his own flocks by themselves and he put them into, into Laban's cattle Verse 41, and it came to pass, whensoever the, strange, the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. 
What a strange story. Like, what in the world could that possibly mean? And I want to tell you, if you don't understand what was going on, I went back and I read and I looked at different things and different perspectives on this particular passage. But here's the uniqueness of it. Here's what Jacob knew. Now, whether this was because science worked or whether it was because the supernatural reality of God continued to bless him, I don't know which one it is. But this is what would happen. Because Jacob says, all I want is the ring straked, I want the speckled, and I want the brown. And Laban said, that's fine, take them, there's not many anyway. So Jacob went and got them, rounded them up, and when the sheep and the goats would come, the cattle would come, Jacob had taken branches off of trees, and he would peel them so that the white behind the bark would show. And some he would notch. Ever so often, he'd create a notch. So that when you put these boards together, these branches together, it would create a stripe. Or when he separated them, it would create a spot. This has got to be one of the stranger stories in the Bible. And when the strong animals would come to the trough to eat, he would put these before them so that whatever they saw is what they would conceive. If they saw speckled, their offspring would be speckled. If they were striped, they saw the stripes, the offspring would be striped. Because what was happening here? Again, such a strange story. Whatever they beheld, they reproduced. Whatever they saw is what the offspring looked like. So suddenly, the few cattle, the few goats, the few sheep that Jacob had suddenly became huge. And he was blessed. It says he was blessed over and over again. Because of this moment, when those strong animals were coming, it said when the weak animals were coming, he had laid the reeds down. When the strong animals would come, he'd stand them up in front of them so that when they were at the trough and they conceived when they were at the trough, they would bring forth whatever they saw. So what's the great story? We reproduce whatever we behold. Whatever we see is what we reproduce. Can you see a significance to this story? Let's share just a few things very quickly. If that is true, if we reproduce, if that is our offspring based on what we have seen, then what do you think we're looking at when our offspring is bitterness? What do you think we're looking at when our offspring is sadness? What do you think we're looking at when our offspring, and you, you know what I'm talking about, you talk to these people, you, or it may be you, and what comes out of your mouth is negative. What comes out of your mouth is down. What comes out of your mouth is destructive. What comes out of your mouth is harmful. What comes out of your heart is hopeless. What does it say that you're beholding? That you're beholding bitterness. That you're beholding that your eyes are fixed on sadness. That your eyes are fixed on grief. That your eyes are fixed on those things negative. Because whatever you're looking at, that's what's coming out the other side. That's what you're producing. And we have to say, wow. If it's as simple as changing what I'm looking at, to change my offspring, to change what I produce out of my life, then I need to get my eyes fixed on something very different. We see it unfold in families all the time, where blame has replaced forgiveness, where broken promises have left broken hearts, where neglect and insensitivity have left bitterness and frustration. And where our eyes and our hearts are filled with the drama of TV, of video games, and of music. Think about that for just a second. 
when our eyes and our hearts are filled with the drama of TV, of video games, and of music. How many hours do our eyes behold those things? When computers and phones have replaced time with our spouse and with our family. What are our eyes fixed on so much of the day? I know that this is a strange place to find inspiration and it may seem a little bit ridiculous. I hope not, but as we approach this Christmas season and see the great and often difficult stories that are unfolding around the world, and there are some tough ones, you don't have to look at the news very long and you realize that the stories that are there are huge. They're complicated. And the solutions are not obvious. If they were, they would have been done a long time ago. We don't know exactly what the answers to these problems are. But I want you to know this, that while we watch those big stories unfold around the world, we have to know the complicated story and difficult news is being processed in the hearts of people sitting right here. We look at those and, we, and we're kind of overwhelmed by them. But I want to tell you, there are many broken hearts, there are many disappointments, and there are many frustrations right here, especially within the community, around the school, and in this area. So we can't forget what we're facing. A few days ago, we were watching the movie Charlotte's Web with Samuel, and he likes the animation and such a good story. For a kid that's 20 months old, he's, his attention span is amazingly long, and he sits there and watches. He may play a while, but he'll watch that movie. And we come to the end of that movie. I'm a crier, and you did, it doesn't take much to get me fired up. So when we come to the end of Charlotte's Web, and Charlotte has died, there's a segment in the end of that movie. It kind of pans away from the area. It shows the farms, and it shows the man raking at the end. This is before all the babies are born. And this is what the narrator says. Because of what they had seen from Charlotte, because of her determination to keep a promise to a little pig, something had changed in Somerset County. It was as if people knew they lived in a special place. In small ways, they started being special people, a little bit kinder, a little bit more understanding. They were closer and the warmth of their friendship carried them through the cold, dark months. They showed it in little gestures of kindness, unusual patience, and promises kept. Even the hardest of hearts found themselves rising to the occasion. I share that as we come into this Christmas season because this has been on my heart for several weeks. I stand here and offer this a word of encouragement. I have watched things unfold around me and around you, and we wonder which direction things are going. We wonder about families and what's really going on in their lives and what brokenness is really there. We look at the things that in, in our community, in our area, school and other places. And I wonder if it might be just this simple, that if somewhere in our hearts we went back to these little gestures of kindness, unusual patience and promises kept, if the difference that we saw wouldn't become profound and dynamic. And then the Lord brought me this message, this strange message about whatever we behold, that's what we reproduce. Because if I were to tell you to go out there today and just start being more kind, let's just go out there and start doing these unusual acts of, of kindness, these gestures, and keeping promises, then we could try hard and we might make a small difference. 
But if that really became the result of where we have our eyes, if we could actually see something different so that the actions of our life became different, then the world gets to deal with God and not me just trying to be good. So what is it that we should be looking upon? Where should our eyes be fixed so that the outcome looks like what we want it to look like? So the outcome begins to change a church and a city and a school and an area and hopefully a nation. It's so easy, very easy to get discouraged. I don't know why it's such an easy step into discouragement. But part of that's because of where we have our eyes fixed. Jay said it this morning. God's not powerful because of our numbers. He's powerful because of our faith. That isn't determined by how many are here. So what is it that we should look on? If you don't want to follow quickly, I'm going to read these very quickly. They're just one verse at a time. What is it that we should behold? Here it is. John 1, 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And we reproduce hope. Think about that. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. If what we behold becomes what we reproduce, when we behold the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, we reproduce, we become hope to the world. Mark chapter 13, verse 26. And then shall they see, and then shall they behold the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus coming, we reproduce. We become to the world power and glory. Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And we become resurrection and life to a lost world. Luke 3, 6. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God, and we bring salvation to the world. We are pregnant with the hope of salvation. We have living in us Jesus. We're pregnant with him, and the world is waiting for us to deliver. Do you have your eyes fixed on Jesus? John eleven forty, And Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And we become his glory. And Matthew 5, 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And we reproduce the hearts of the Father whom we behold within our own hearts. What are your eyes fixed on today? Are they fixed on sadness? Are they fixed on glory? Are they fixed on difficulty? Are they fixed on peace? Do we see Jesus coming? Or do we see the hardship of yesterday? Do we see the addictions? Do we see the things that have captured our hearts that we once walked away from and now we're back? Do we see those things? Or do we see Jesus, the deliverer, who has come to set us free? What are we looking at this morning? Where are your eyes fixed? What do you see? Can it produce kindness? Can it produce joy and peace? Can it produce love and hope? If you're not looking there, so that that's what you reproduce, change your focus. Lord, we come to you thanking you for these moments. Let us get our eyes fixed on you and let it reproduce the simplest acts of kindness that we could possibly imagine that will change the world. In Jesus' name.
Amen.